Chapter Twenty Seven of the Riddle of the Sands. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gesine. The Riddle of the Sands by Erskine Childers. Chapter Twenty Seven. The Luck of the Stowaway. At Eason's station I reversed my northern tactics, jumped out smartly, and got to the door of egress first of all, gave up my ticket, and hung about the gate of the station under cover of darkness. Fortune smiled still, there was no vehicle in waiting at all, and there were only half a dozen passengers. Two of these were the cloaked gentlemen who had been so nearly left behind at Norden, and another was von Brüning. The latter walked well in advance of the first pair, but at the gate on to the high road the three showed a common purpose in that, unlike the rest who turned towards Eason's town, they turned southwards, much to my perplexity, for this was the contrary direction to Benzazil and the sea. I, with my bundle on my shoulder, had been bringing up the rear, and, as their faithful shadow, turned to the right too, without foreseeing the consequence. When it was too late to turn back, I saw that, fifty yards ahead, the road was barred by the gates of a level crossing, and that the four of us must inevitably accumulate at the barrier till the train had steamed away. This, in fact, happened, and for a minute or two we were all in a group, elaborately indifferent to one another, silent, but I am sure very conscious. As for me, secret laughter tickled all my soul. When the gates were opened, the three seemed disposed to lag, so I tactfully took my cue, trudged briskly on ahead, and stopped after a few minutes to listen. Hearing nothing, I went cautiously back, and found that they had disappeared, in which direction was not long in doubt, for I came on a grassy path, leading into the fields on the left or west of the road, and though I could see no one, I heard the distant murmur of receding voices. I took my bearings collectedly, placed one foot on the path, thought better of it, and turned back towards Eason's. I knew without reference to the map that the path would bring them to the Benzer Teef, at a point somewhere near the timber-yard. In a fog I might have followed them there. As it was, the night was none too dark, and I had my strength to husband, and stamped on my memory were the words, The tide serves. I judged it a wiser use of time and sinew to anticipate them at Benzazil by the shortest road, leaving them to reach it by way of the devious teeth, to examine which was, I felt convinced, one of their objects. It was nine o'clock of a fresh wild night, a halo round a beclouded moon. I passed through quiet easons, and in an hour I was close to Benzazil and could hear the sea. In the rooted idea that I should find Grimm on the outskirts, awaiting visitors, I left the road short of the village, and made a circuit to the harbour by way of the sea-wall. The lower windows of the inn shed a warm glow into the night, and within I could see the village circle gathered over cards, and dominated, as of old, by the assertive little postmaster, whose high-pitched, excitable voice I could clearly distinguish as he sat with his cap on the back of his head 
and a feine schnapps at his elbow. The harbour itself looked exactly the same as I remembered it a week ago. The postboat lay in her old berth at the eastern jetty, her mainsail set and her twin giants spitting over the rail. I hailed them boldly from the shore, without showing them who I was, and was told they were starting for Langeoog in a few minutes. The wind was offshore, the mails aboard, and the water just high enough. Did I want a passage? No, I thought I would wait. Positive that my party could never have got here so soon, I nevertheless kept an eye on the galliot till she let go her stern-rope and slid away. One contingency was illuminated. Some loiterers dispersed, and all port business appeared to be ended for the night. Three-quarters of an hour of strained suspense ensued. Most of it I spent on my knees in a dark angle between the dike and the western jetty, whence I had a strategic survey of the basin. But I was driven at times to relieve inaction by sallies, which increased in audacity. I scouted on the road beyond the bridge, hovered round the lock, and peered in at the inn-parlour, but nowhere could I see a trace of Grimm. I examined every floating object in the harbour, they were very few, dropped on two lighters and pried under tarpaulins, boarded the deserted tug and two or three clumsy rowboats tied up to a mooring post. Only one of these had the look of readiness, the rest being devoid of oars and rowlocks, a discouraging state of things for a prospective boat-lifter. It was the sight of these rowboats that suggested a last and more distracting possibility, namely that the boat in waiting, if boat they were, might not be in the harbour at all, but somewhere on the sands outside the dike, where, at this high state of the tide, it would have water and to spare. Back to the dike, then, but as I peered seaward on the way, contingencies evaporated and a solid fact supervened, for I saw the lights of a steamboat approaching the harbour-mouth. I had barely time to gain my coin of vantage before she had swept in between the piers, and with a fitful swizzling of her screw was turning and backing down to a berth just ahead of one of the lighters, at not fifty feet from the hiding-place. A deckhand jumped ashore with a rope, while the man at the wheel gave gruff directions. The vessel was a small tug, and the man at the wheel disclosed his identity when, having rung off his engines, he jumped ashore also, looked at his watch in the beam of the sidelight, and walked towards the village. It was Grimm by height and build, Grimm clad in a long tarpaulin coat and sou'wester. I watched him cross the shaft of light from the inn window and disappear in the direction of the canal. Another sailor now appeared, and helped his fellow to tie up the tug. The two together then went aft and began to set about some job whose nature I could not determine. To emerge was perilous, so I set about a job of my own, tearing open my bundle and pulling an oilskin jacket and trousers over my clothes, and discarding my peaked cap for a sou'wester. This operation was prompted instantaneously by the garb of two sailors who, in hauling on the forward warp, came into the field of the masthead light. 
it was something of a gymnastic masterpiece since I was lying, or rather standing aslant, on the rough sea wall, with crannies of brick for foothold and the water plashing below me, but then I had not lived on the Dulcibella for nothing. My chain of thought, I fancy, was this. The tug is to carry my party. I cannot shadow a tug in a rowboat, yet I intend to shadow my party. I must therefore go with them in the tug, and the first and soundest step is to mimic her crew. But the next step was a hard matter, for the crew, having finished their job, sat side by side on the bullocks and lit their pipes. However, a little pantomime soon occurred, as amusing as it was inspiriting. They seemed to consult together, looking from the tug to the inn and from the inn to the tug. One of them walked a few paces inwards and beckoned to the other, who in his turn called something down to the engine-room skylight, and then joined his mate in a scuttle to the inn. Even while I watched the pantomime, I was sliding off my boots, and it had not been consummated a second before I had them in my arms and was tripping over the mud in my stocking feet. A dozen noiseless steps, and I was over the bullocks between the wheel and the smokestack, casting about for a hiding-place. The conventional stowaway hides in the hold, but there was only a stoke-hold here, occupied, moreover, nor was there an empty apple-barrel such as Jim of Treasure Island found so useful. As far as I could see, and I dared not venture far for fear of the skylight, the surface of the deck offered nothing secure, but on the farther or starboard side, rather abaft the beam, there was a small boat in davits, swung outboard, to which common sense, and perhaps a vague prescience of its after-utility, pointed irresistibly. In any case, discrimination was out of place, so I mounted the bullock, and gently entered my refuge. The tackles creaked a trifle, oars and seats impeded me, but well before the thirsty truants had returned, I was settled on the floorboards between two thwarts, so placed that I could, if necessary, peep over the gunwale. The two sailors returned at a run, and very soon after voices approached, and I recognised that of Herr Schenkel, chattering volubly. He and Grimm boarded the tug, and went down a companionway aft, near which, as I peeped over, I saw a second skylight, no bigger than the Dulcibella's, illuminated from below. Then I heard a cork drawn and the kiss of glasses, and in a minute or two they re-emerged. It was apparent that Herr Schenkel was inclined to stay and make merry, and that Grimm was anxious to get rid of him, and none too courteous in showing it. The former urged that tomorrow's tide would do, the latter gave orders to cast off, and at length observed with an angry oath that the water was falling and he must start, and to clinch matters with a curt good night, he went to the wheel and rang up his engines. Herr Schenkel landed and strutted off in a high dudgeon, while the tug's screw began to revolve. We had only glided a few yards on when the engines stopped. A short blast of the whistle sounded, and before I had had time to recast the future, I heard a scurry of footsteps in the direction of the dike, first on the bank, next on the deck. The last of these new arrivals panted audibly as he got aboard, and dropped on the planks with an unelastic thud.
her compliment made up, the tug left the harbour, but not alone. While slowly gathering way, the hull checked all at once with a sharp jerk, recovered, and increased its speed. We had something in tow. What? The lighter, of course, that had been lying astern of us. Now I knew what was in that lighter, because I had been to sea half an hour ago. It was no lethal cargo, but coal, common household coal, not a full load of it, I remembered, just a good-sized mound amidships, trimmed with battens fore and aft to prevent shifting. Well, thought I, this is intelligible enough. Grimm was ostensibly here to call for a load of coal for Mehmet. But does that mean we are going to Mehmet? At the same time I recalled a phrase overheard at the depot, only one, half a load. Why half a load? For some few minutes there was a good deal of movement on deck, and of orders shouted by Grimm and answered by a voice from far astern on the lighter. Presently, however, the tug warmed to her work, the hull vibrated with energy, and an ordered peace reigned on board. I also realised that having issued from the boom channel we had turned westward, for the wind, which had been blowing us fair, now blew strongly over the port beam. I peeped out of my eyrie, and was satisfied in a moment that as long as I made no noise, and observed proper prudence, I was perfectly safe until the boat was wanted. There were no deck-lamps, the two skylights diffused but a sickly radiance, and I was abaft the side-lights. I was abaft the wheel also, though thrillingly near it in point of distance, about twelve feet, I should say, and Grimm was steering. The wheel, I should mention here, was raised, as you often see them, on a sort of pulpit, approached by two or three steps, and fenced by a breast-high arc of boarding. Only one of the crew was visible, and he was acting as lookout in the extreme bows, the rays of the masthead lights, for a second had been hoisted, in sign of towage, glistening in his oilskin back. The other man, I concluded, was steering the lighter, which I could dimly locate by the pale foam at her bow. And the passengers? They were altogether aft, three of them, leaning over the taffrail, with their backs turned to me. One was short and stout, boomer unquestionably. The panting and the thud on the planks had prepared me for that. Though where he had sprung from, I did not know. Two were tall, and one of these must be von Brüning. There ought to be four, I reckoned, but three were all I could see. And what of the third? It must be he who insists on coming, the unknown superior at whose instance and for whose behoof this secret expedition had been planned. And who could he be? Many times, needless to say, I had asked myself that question, but never till now, when I had found the rendezvous and joined the expedition, did it come one of burning import. Any weather was another of those stored-up phrases that were apropos. It was a dirty, squally night, not very cold, for the wind still hung in the south-south-west. An offshore wind on this coast, causing no appreciable sea on the shoal spaces we were traversing. In the matter of our bearings, 
I set myself doggedly to overcome that paralyzing perplexity, always induced in me by night or fog in these intricate waters, and by screwing round and round, succeeding so far as to discover and identify two flashing lights, one alternately red and white, far and faint astern, the other right ahead and rather stronger, giving white flashes only. The first and least familiar was, I made out, from the lighthouse on Wangerog, the second, well known to me as our beacon star in the race from Memmert, was the light on the centre of Norderney Island, about ten miles away. I had no accurate idea of the time, for I could not see my watch, but I thought we must have started about quarter past eleven. We were travelling fast, the funnel belching out smoke and the bow-wave curling high, for the tug appeared to be a powerful little craft, and her load was comparatively light. So much for the general situation. As for my own predicament, I was in no mood to brood on the hazards of this mad adventure. A hundredfold more hazardous than my fog-smothered eavesdropping at Memmert. The crisis, I knew, had come, and the reckless impudence that had brought me here must serve me still and extricate me. Fortune loves rough wooing. I backed my luck and watched. The behaviour of the passengers struck me as odd. They remained in a row at the taffrail, gazing astern like regretful emigrants, and sometimes gesticulating and pointing. Now no vestige of the low land was visible, so I was driven to the conclusion that it was the lighter they were discussing, and I date my awakening from the moment that I realised this. But the thread broke prematurely, for the passengers took to pacing the deck, and I had to lie low. When next I was able to raise my head, they were round grim at the wheel, engaged, as far as I could discover from their gestures, in an argument about our course and the time, for Grimm looked at his watch by the light of a hand-lantern. We were heading north, and I knew by the swell that we must be near the Akumae, the gap between Langeoog and Baltrum. Were we going out to open sea? It came over me with a rush that we must, if we were to drop this lighter at Memmert. Had I been Davis, I should have been quicker to seize certain rigid conditions of this cruise, which no human power could modify. We had left after high tide. The water, therefore, was falling everywhere, and the tributary channels in rear of the islands were slowly growing impassable. It was quite thirty miles to Memmert, with three watersheds to pass, behind Baltrum, Norderney, and Eust. A skipper with nerve and perfect confidence might take us over one of these in the dark, but most of the run would infallibly have to be made outside. I now better understood the protests of Herr Schenkel to Grimm. Never once had we seen a lighter in tow in the open sea, though plenty behind the barrier of islands. Indeed, it was the very existence of the sheltered byways that created such traffic as there was. It was only Grimm's métier and the incubus of the lighter that had suggested Memmert as our destination at all, and I began to doubt it now. That tricky hoop of sand had befooled us before. 
At this moment, and as if to corroborate my thought, the telegraph rang and the tug slowed down. I effaced myself and heard Grimm shouting to the man on the lighter to starboard his helm, and to the lookout to come aft. The next order froze my very marrow. It was, lower away! Someone was at the davits of my boat, fingering the tackles. The forward fall-rope actually slipped on the block and tilted the boat a fraction. I was just wondering how far it was to swim to Langorg, when a strong, imperious voice, unknown to me, rang out, "'No, no, we don't want the boat. This swell's nothing. We can jump. Can't we, Boomer?' The speaker ended with a jovial laugh. "'Mercy,' thought I, "'are they going to swim to Langorg?' But I also gasped for relief. The tug rolled lifelessly in the swell for a little, and footsteps retreated aft. There were cries of Achtung, and some laughter, one big bump and a good deal of grinding, and on we moved again, taking the strain of the tow-rope gingerly, and then full speed ahead. The passengers, it seemed, preferred the lighter to the tug for cruising in, coal-dust and exposure to clean planks and a warm cuddy. When silence reigned again, I peeped out. Grimm was at the wheel still, impassively twirling the spokes, with a glance over his shoulder at his precious freight. And, after all, we were going outside. Close on the port hand lay a black, foam-girt shape, the east of Spit Baltrum. It fused with the night while we swung slowly round to windward over the troubled bar. Now we were in the spacious deeps of the North Sea, and feeling it, too, in increase of swell and volleys of spray. At this point evolutions began. Grimm gave the wheel up to the lookout, and himself went to the taffrail, whence he roared back orders of port or starboard in response to signals from the lighter. We made one complete circle, steering on each point of the wind in succession, after that worked straight out to sea till the water was a good deal rougher, and back again at a tangent, till in earshot of the surf on the island beach. There the manoeuvres, which were clearly in the nature of a trial trip, ended, and we hove to, to transship our passengers. They, when they came aboard, went straight below, and Grimm, having steadied the tug on a settled course, and entrusted the wheel to the sailor again, stripped off his dripping oilskin coat, threw it down on the cabin skylight, and followed them. The course he had set was about west, with Norderney light a couple of points off the port bow. The course for Mehmet? Possibly, but I cared not, for my mind was far from Mehmet to-night. It was the course for England, too. Yes, I understood at last. I was assisting at an experimental rehearsal of a great scene, to be enacted perhaps in the near future, a scene when multitudes of sea-going lighters, carrying full loads of soldiers, not half loads of coals, should issue simultaneously in seven ordered fleets from seven shallow outlets, and under escort of the Imperial Navy, traverse the North Sea and throw themselves bodily upon English shores. Indulgent reader, 
you may be pleased to say that I have been very obtuse, and yet, with humility, I protest against that verdict. Remember that, recent as arc the events I am describing, it is only since they happened that the possibility of invasion of England by Germany has become a topic of public discussion. Davis and I had never, I was going to say, had never considered it, but that would be inaccurate, for we had glanced at it once or twice, and if any single incident in his or our joint cruise had provided a semblance of confirmation, he, at any rate, would have kindled to that spark. But you will see how perversely, from first to last, circumstances drove us deeper and deeper into the wrong groove, till the idea became inveterate that the secret we were seeking was one of defence and not of offence. Hence a complete mental somersault was required, and, as an amateur, I found it difficult, the more so that the method of invasion, as I darkly comprehended it now, was of such a strange and unprecedented character, for orthodox invasions start from big ports and involve a fleet of ocean transports, while none of our clues pointed that way. To neglect obvious methods, to draw on the obscure resources of an obscure strip of coast, to improve and exploit a quantity of insignificant streams and tidal outlets, and thence, screened by the islands, to dispatch an armada of light-draft barges capable of flinging themselves on a correspondingly obscure and therefore unexpected portion of the enemy's coast. That was a conception so daring, aye, and so quixotic, in some of its aspects, that even now I was half incredulous. Yet it must be the true one. Bit by bit the fragments of the puzzle fell into order till a coherent whole was adumbrated. The reader will find the whole matter dealt with in the epilogue. The tug surged on into the night. A squall of rain leapt upon us and swept hissing astern. Baltrum vanished and the strands of Norderney beamed under transient moonlight. Drunk with triumph, I cuddled in my rocking cradle and ransacked every unvisited chamber in the memory, tossing out their dusty contents to make a joyous bonfire of some, and to see the residue take life and meaning in the light of the great revelation. My reverie was of things, not persons, of vast national issues, rather than of the poignant human interests so closely linked with them. But on a sudden I was recalled, with a shock, to myself, Davis, and the present. We were changing our course, as I knew by variations in the whirl of draughts which whistled about me. I heard Grimm afoot again, and, choosing my moment, surveyed the scene. Broad on the port beam were the garish nights of Norderney town and promenade, and the tug, I perceived, was drawing in to enter the Zeegut. Round she came, hustling through the broken water of the bar, till her nose was south, and the wind was on the starboard bow. Not a mile from me were the villa and the yacht, and the three persons of the drama, three, that is, if Davis was safe. Were we to land at Norderney Harbour? Heavens, what a magnificent climax! If only I could rise to it. My work here was done. At a stroke to rejoin Davis, and be free to consummate our designs. 
a desperate idea of cutting the david tackles i blush to think of the stupidity was rejected as soon as it was born and instead i endeavoured to imagine our approach to the pier my boat hung on the starboard side that would be the side away from the quay and the tide would be low i could swarm down the davits during the stir of arrival drop into the sea and swim the few yards across the drenched-out channel wade through the mud to within a short distance of the dulcibella and swim the rest i rubbed the salt out of my eyes and wriggled my cramped legs hallo why was grimm leaving the helm again back he went to the cabin leaving the sailor at the helm we ought to be turning to port now but no on we went south for the mainland though one plan was frustrated the longing to get to davis once implanted waxed apace our destination was at last beyond dispute the channel we were in was the same that we had cut across on our blind voyage to memmert and the same my ferry steamer had followed two days ago it was a cul-de-sac leading to one place only the landing stage at norddeich the only place on the whole coast now i came to think of it where the tug could land at this tide there the quay would be on the starboard side and i saw myself tied to an airy while the passengers landed and the tug and lighter turned back for memmert at memmert dawn and discovery there was some way out some way out i repeated to myself some way to reap the fruit of davis's long tutelage in the law of this strange reason what would he do for answer there came the familiar frou-frou of gentle surf on drying sands the swell was dying away the channels narrowing dusky and weird on the starboard hand stretched leagues of now risen sand two men only were on deck the moon was quenched under the vanguard clouds of a fresh squall a madcap scheme danced before me the time i must know the time crouching low and cloaking the flame with my jacket i struck a match two thirty a m the tide had been ebbing for about three hours and a half low water about five they would be aground till seven thirty danger to life none flares and rescuers not likely with him who insists on board besides no one could come there being no danger i should have a fair wind and a fair tide for my trip grimm's coat was on the skylight we were both clean-shaved the helmsman gazed ahead intent on his difficult course and the wind howled to perfection i knelt up and examined one of the david tackles there was nothing remarkable about it a double and a single block like our own peak halyards the lower one hooked into a ring in the boat the hauling part made fast to a cleat on the davit itself something there must be to give lateral support or the boat would have racketed abroad in the roll outside the support i found consisted of two lanyards spliced to the davits and rove through holes in the keel these I leaned over and cut with my pocket-knife, the result being a barely perceptible swaying of the boat, for the tug was under the lee of sands and on an even keel. Then I left my hiding-place. 
climbing out of the stern sheets by the after davit and preparing every successive motion with exquisite tenderness till i stood on the deck in another moment i was in the cabin skylight lifting grimm's long oilskin coat a second's yielding to temptation here but no the skylight was ground glass fastened from below so on with the coat up with the collar and forward to the wheel on tiptoe as soon as i was up to the engine-room skylight that is to say well ahead of the cabin roof i assumed the natural step went up to the pulpit and touched the helmsman on the arm as i had seen grimm do the man stepped aside grunted something about a light and i took the wheel from him grimm was a man of few words so i just jogged his satellite and pointed forward he went off like a lamb to his customary place in the bows not having dreamt why should he of examining me but in him i had instantly recognized one of the crew of the cormoran my ruse developed in all its delicious simplicity we were i estimated about half-way to norddeich in the busetief a channel of a navigable breadth at the utmost of two hundred yards at this period of the tide two faint lights one above the other tinkled far ahead what they meant i neither knew nor cared since the only use i put them to was to test the effect of the wheel for this was the first time i had ever tasted the sweets of command on a steamboat a few cautious essays taught me the rudiments and nothing could hinder the catastrophe now i edged over to starboard that was the side i had selected and again a little more till the glistening back of the lookout gave a slight movement but he was a well-drilled minion with implicit trust in the old man now hard over and spoke by spoke i gave her the full pressure of the helm the lookout shouted a warning and i raised my arm in calm acknowledgment a cry came from the lighter and i remember i was just thinking what the dickens'll happen to her when the end came a euthanasia so mild and gradual for the sands are fringed with mud that the disaster was on us before i was aware of it there was just the tiniest premonitory shuddering as our keel clove the buttery medium a cascade of ripples from either beam and the wheel jammed to rigidity in my hands as the tug nestled up to her riding-place in the scene of panic that followed it is safe to say that i was the only soul on board who acted with methodical tranquillity the lookout flew astern like an arrow falling to the lighter grimm with the passengers tumbling up after him was on deck in an instant storming and cursing flung himself on the wheel which i had respectfully abandoned jangled the telegraph and wrenched at the spokes the tug listed over under the force of the tide wind darkness and rain aggravated the confusion for my part i stepped back behind the smokestack threw off my robe of office and made for the boat long and bitter experience of running aground had told me that that was sure to be wanted on the way i cannoned into one of the passengers and pressed him to my service incidentally seeing his face and verifying an old conjecture it was one who in germany has a better right to insist than any one else as we reached the davits there was a report like a pistol shot from the port side the tow-rope parting i believe as the lighter with her shallower draught swung on past the tug fresh tumult arose 
in which I heard, Lower the boat, from Grimm, but the order was already executed. My ally, the passenger, and I had each cast off a tackle, and slacked away with a run. That done, I promptly clutched the wire guy to steady myself, and tumbled in. It was not far to tumble, for the tug listed heavily to starboard. Think of our course, and the set of the ebb stream, and you will see why. The forward fall unhooked sweetly, but the after one lost play. Slack away, I called, peremptorily, and felt for my knife. My helper above obeyed. The hook yielded. I filliped away the loose tackle, and the boat floated away. End of chapter 27